I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds, it's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 93, we read Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Policies by Kimberly Crenshaw from 1989. Kimberly Crenshaw was born in Canton, Ohio in 1959. She received a bachelor's degree in government and Africana studies from Cornell University. She received a JD from Harvard Law School in 1984 and a master in law from the University of Wisconsin Law School in 1985. Crenshaw is a scholar and writer on civil rights, critical race theory, black feminist legal theory, and race and racism and the law. She serves as Sulzbacher Professor of Law at Columbia Law School and a distinguished professor of law at UCLA. She's a founding coordinator of the Critical Race Theory Workshop and co-editor of Critical Race Theory, Key Documents That Shaped the Movement. In 1981, she assisted on the legal team of Anita Hill during her testimony at the confirmation hearing of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. All right, Kimberly Crenshaw. So this is so this is certainly the most, uh, the most jargony uh, <laughs> title of a work that we've, uh, I think that we've read in three years. Demarginalizing the intersection of race and sex. I think we're hopefully find out what some of these words mean. Mm-hmm. She starts out by saying, "Law's tendency to treat race and gender as mutually exclusive categories of experience and analysis is problematic. In race discrimination cases, discrimination tends to be viewed in terms of sex or class privileged blacks. In sex discrimination cases, the focus is on race." and class-privileged women. So this focus, she says, on the most privileged group members marginalizes those who are multiply uh, burdened and obscures claims that cannot be understood as resulting from discrete sources of discrimination. So her task here, she says, I will center black women in this analysis in order to contrast the multidimensionality of black women's experience with the single axis analysis that distorts these experiences, this juxtaposition reveal how black women are theoretically erased. So I think from the outset, what she's saying is essentially when it comes to discrimination in the law, there's a, there's a stream of discrimination cases based on sex. And then there's another entirely separate stream of discrimination based on uh, skin color. And so if you are an African-American woman, then you actually are burdened by both being a woman and being black at the same time. And the, the law doesn't, at least in 1989, did not have a pathway uh, or a, a remedy for, for this uh, multi-dimensional, um, I guess, uh, discrimination situation. Right. I mean, here's where we, we hear the term intersectionality a lot these days and this is kind of where it comes from I, th- I think she's actually the one who invented it or at least popularized it um and that's in a way you can see what she's kind of getting at here i mean if somebody if a group feels and she goes through several 
because it is a law review article. So this is really when criminal race theory was just a law theory before it had kind of broken down in the academy. So she discusses a few uh, discrimination cases in which the, the plaintiffs were a group of, of black women, at least in the, in the first one, so they were discriminated against as black women. And the court's saying, well, you can be discriminated against as black people or you can be discriminated against as women, but that's not really a thing to be discriminated against as both. That's not how the law works. And if if, if they were be, being actually discriminated against on those grounds specifically, you could see why that would sort of feel like a head scratcher you know, if for the court to rule that way, you know, it's, it's because it's two different discriminations, then it's no discrimination. That that's kind of a strange ruling. And honestly, as I'm reading that, I'm saying, yeah, she's, she's got a point. That's kind of a strange thing. I mean, where it goes from there, you know, it gets into a lot of stuff that's really not law. And which I was, I was struck by, uh, if you've ever read a law review article, you know it's often it's like half footnotes. And this right. is this is not that. I mean, there are some long stretches that are more like political philosophy, which makes more sense for our show. But as a, as a legal matter, it's a lot of sort of blue sky theorizing, and you know that that just struck me as odd. But I, I think the fact she starts with here, talking about how the the framework of anti discrimination laws work, is not unreasonable at, at, at first glance. I mean, you've, I, I think you have this, this principle in discrimination laws that you shouldn't discriminate against anyone for something like that's beyond their control, that the way they were born, appearance or sex or, you know, any of these things, that's sort of, that's, that's what we're getting at with discrimination law. But what we have is specific laws. So you can't discriminate, discriminate based on this, that, and the other. And there's some things you can discriminate against on that. In most states, you can uh, fire somebody for being the wrong political party. That's considered okay in, in most places. Uh, but wrong religion? Yeah, you can't do that. That that we've decided long ago is not cool. So I think what Crenshaw is sort of getting at in the beginning as she's setting this up is there are some laws that are purport to do things, but they're not really doing it and not in, in a way that helps the group she's particularly concerned with here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, as a baseline, I'm going to use her language here because I, th I actually think it's pretty straightforward. She says, black women are sometimes excluded from uh, feminist theory and anti-racist policy discourse because both are predicated on a discrete set of experiences that often does not accurately reflect the interaction of race and gender. Because the intersectional experience is greater than the sum of racism and sexism, any analysis that does not take intersectionality, this is the word, into account, cannot sufficiently address the particular manner in which black women are subordinated. So intersectionality, as I imagine it, is if you have an intersection where, uh, and <laughs> where you have two streets, you have the racism street and you have the sexism street and they're meeting and uh, that's the intersection. And so you're, you're uh, doubly uh, set back. Um, now, as you said, at the, uh, early in the article, she gives, she gives two examples of cases. One basically that's essentially um, show, showing that, uh, that a pure, a pure uh, sex discrimination analysis is, is the wrong fit. And then another one that shows that a pure racism analysis is the wrong fit. Now, I, 
we, we're not going to go through the details. I think I think if if I I w- I'm reluctant to uh, to take to take that on face value, even though I, I get what she's getting at. But I t- I'm reluctant to take it on face value just because she didn't really open up the cases, so it's really mm-hmm. hard to tell like yeah. what exactly happened in those. You know, what's the fact pattern? She doesn't really tell us, so we have to kind of take her word for it. And and so. Um, I'm a little, I'm usually like hesitant. (laughs) No, that's fair. We want to see, we want to see it opened up and uh, see exactly what happened there. Um, But in any case, the concept though, I mean, I agree with you and and I, and I agree here that uh, it does make some sense that you're, what she's arguing essentially is that we, we have two, two streams of analysis and uh, it doesn't take into account folks who, who may be, um, suffering well, maybe victims of uh of, of both at the same time and uh that the legal system at least at the time was not uh was not structured such to uh, to ad- address those claims and and that in and of itself if if i think this is if this was the main point of intersectionality i think we could put a period on it and say yeah okay you know that's mm-hmm. that that makes a lot of sense and maybe that's something that we should uh, we should think about but as you said, the, the rest of the article actually is has uh, moves on from a, a legal argument and much more of a kind of a social political commentary. Yeah, she says um, she starts getting into like, well, okay, what given that this is so, what does that mean? Where what does that mean for the legal system in general? She says, race and sex, moreover, become significant only when they operate to explicitly disadvantage the victims because the privileging of whiteness or maleness is implicit, is generally not perceived at all. So I think what what she here she's starting to talk about that that word that we hear oh so much these days uh, privilege and what I think what she's saying is that because the system is set to expect a certain sort of behavior but that behavior is actually only behavior that happens to these so-called privileged people and the deviations from that are what's against the law but maybe that's not the right way to look at things is she saying mm-hmm. i think it's i think it kind of is the right way to look at things i mean I, I i think part of the liberal system is that there is a standard of how people should be treated and if what crenshaw is saying and which and if what much of history shows us is that 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 way is not always the way everyone was treated and often on lines of race or sex or other situations so I think what has the triumph of, of liber, liberalism or, or however, you know, liberalism in the, in the European sense, in the sense of liberty, I think it, the triumph of that system is that we are consistently trying to bring people into that orbit of being treated right and mm-hmm. consistently trying to expand that. I th- Crenshaw looks at it from a different way and seems to want to say that because this system is centered in that point of view it is inherently flawed i don't she doesn't use that exact language but that seems to be she talks at the end about like rethinking restructuring and remaking the world where necessary and and things like this basically it's it's sort of like what we heard in the back in that critical or cynical theories episode which is one of my favorite episodes i think it's one of the best books we've read but that her work and, and the work of others is a lot of what uh, Pluckrose and Lindsay were talking about on the, in that book, on that, in that episode. And instead of saying, these are good principles, we need to do better at applying them. We need to be better people. 
better system live up to that thing that we think of ourselves as. She's looking at this and saying, no, we need to recharacterize this. We need to look at these intersections and recharacterize ourselves on that basis. And where it goes wild these days, too, is also she's talking about the intersection of two axes. But nowadays, uh, there are so many uh, claimed axes of oppression. It's like uh, I forget which high school math class it was where we learned about matrices. And, you know, and there's a two dimensional matrix and a three dimensional matrix. And I'm like, all right, I'm on board with you. And then the teacher's like, now there's a four dimensional matrix. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's too many dimensions. But, it, you know, it. In math, it makes sense. In life, it doesn't. There's only three dimensions. But, you know, it's these dimensions pile up on each other. And it's sort of it makes for a system where I don't know if there is any group anymore, if there is any nation. It just sort of atomizes us all into the uh, the sum of our oppressions. Yeah. So, I mean, what she's essentially setting up to me, it seems like, is kind of a hierarchy of, for better term, for lack of a better term, kind of a hierarchy of victimhood. She says, underlying this conception of discrimination is a view that the wrong which anti-discrimination law addresses is the use of race or gender factors to interfere with decisions that would otherwise be fair or neutral. This process-based definition is not grounded in a bottom-up commitment to improve the substantive conditions for those who are victimized by the interplay of numerous factors. Instead, the dominant message of anti-discrimination law is that it will regulate only the limited extent to which race or sex interferes with the process of determining outcomes, which to me seems like she's really arguing for kind of a tiered system to say the, the current, the, as it stands, the, the, the law as it stands is not sufficient because you have these, you have these singular streams. And uh, in fact, in, in the real world, um, many, Many people who are uh, who suffer from uh, from discrimination actually have, you know, not just black women where you have you're black and you're a woman, but you could potentially have multiple tiers, multiple intersections where you're black and a woman and gay, or um, or black and uh, a you know black and non-binary and in a wheelchair or something. So you'd have you'd have uh, multiple streams, and uh, and so she seems to be arguing to me like that what she what she thinks the law should do is tier these on top of each other, and I and I I take you know in a, in a simple way it's almost like she's arguing for what we need is to to uh, a lot a certain number of points <laughs> or something based on, based on your, uh, your, your, your tier or your hierarchy, you know, your, your, your place in the, in the hierarchy of victimhood, for example. Yeah. It, it, it's hard to, it's hard to figure as a legal concept because I get, I mean, I get what she's, she's saying that the existing law is insufficient, but what this system creates is sort of a, how, how would you, how would you write that as a law? You know, I mean, you would need a vast bureaucracy to analyze every transaction and say, well, is it, there's this many intersections versus this many intersections. And, you know, is it, it, it's sort of like, a, like Ibram Kendi proposed a Department of Anti-Racism that would basically monitor all government policies and, and corporate policies to see if they are racist, which is insane, but you would need something like that because, you know, you and then you'd need to figure out, well, okay, what are the axes upon which one might have intersections? 
and, and you know that's a that's got to be a fight too because it's it feels like like with a lot of the postmodern theories it's not meant to be enumerated you know it's so so how do we how do we say i mean there are some that are obvious like what she's talking about but you know like you're saying we get into today and there's yeah, people feel repressed among a million different axes and well, whether they are or not who can say but well yeah and i mean she she assumes that uh, that they are because i mean she assumes the, what she calls the privileging of whiteness or maleness and then she says uh basically the, the way the law functions is to to use uh what she calls a but for analysis and mm-hmm. uh, and that's what she means by that is uh, uh but for your race or but for your gender you would have been treated differently with uh, maleness and whiteness being the baseline. And the way that the law is structured is essentially, you know, you have to prove that there was discrimination. But what she's arguing is that we should essentially just assume that discrimination is there and almost a lot, uh, a score, you know, based on the number of intersections that, uh, that apply to you or whatever. So she uses this, um, she, she uses kind of this, uh, this broad analogy of, of uh, a basement. She says, imagine a basement which contains all people who are disadvantaged on the basis of race, sex, class, sexual preference, age, and or physical ability. These people are stacked, feet standing on shoulders with those on the bottom being disadvantaged by the full array of factors up to the very top where the heads of all those disadvantaged by a singular factor brush up against the ceiling. Their ceiling is actually the floor above, which only those who are not disadvantaged in any way reside. And then she goes on to describe that the way essentially to prove that, that you've been discriminated against is that you somehow have been, uh, you know, but for your race or but for your sex, you, you wouldn't have been pulled through this trap door that's with, uh, that's in the floor. I mean, it's a pretty convoluted analogy, and I, I did not follow it, to be honest. So that might be a reflection of my own intelligence. But I think basically what she's saying is she assumes that the floor is white and male. And, uh, and you know, so above the floor, that's, that, that's what the law assumes is the, the, uh, the de facto um, situation of a plaintiff is white and male. And what the law is forcing you to do is prove that you are not being treated as equally as a white and a male. And to do that, you can make the argument that you were just that, but for your race, you would have been treated equally, or you can argue, but for your gender, you would have been treated differently. But I guess her analogy is those folks in the basement who are stacked on top of each other, they have, they have so many intersections, whether it's, you know, they could be race, class, sex, um, sexual preference, age, so that uh, you could score the highest if you were, let's say, a black female who was poor and gay and uh, 75 years old and having, having to use crutches or something. And yeah, it, uh, it's, it's a little convoluted, too. And I, I, think, I think she focuses on the wrong thing as the nature of the law. So she's she's putting out that whiteness and maleness is privilege, and that is the baseline. But I I think that's not right. I think that's I think that there's a theory behind that of the way to treat people, the the way that people should have rights and dignity under the law. That is the baseline. 
And the fact that it was mostly at, at first in our country's history given to white property owning men, that's the first example, but it's not the, th- the thing itself, you know? So I, I, it's, it's not that we're comparing everyone's treatment to how would you treat a white man? We're comparing everyone's treatment to what is the ideal of how a person should have been treated in this situation. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I don't, that doesn't privilege any group. It historically has in some circumstances privileged this group or the other, but the theory itself is not a theory of privilege for this group or that group. It is a theory of, of, universal privilege i guess we're in that you know a privilege of all existing in, in an equal society in a liberal society and that's that's sort of what uh like what von mises said about liberalism being the first really universal ideology mm-hmm. it's the, the first thing it applies to everyone equally and it's one of those developments that we don't even think about anymore because everything that came after it was the same pretty much you know i mean Socialism will say the same, and so will various spin-offs of that. But before the the growth of liberalism, there that wasn't the case. There was different groups were meant to be treated differently under the old systems. So you know, having made that advance, I, I think I think she it is easy to lose sight in the fact that that itself is the idea. That is the thing that the law is based in, mm-hmm. and because its effects were imperfect doesn't mean that there is a, an inherent privilege in those of us who received the benefit of, of that imperfection. It is that, you know, the imperfection is not the thing itself. And I, I think that's, that's something I, I see all throughout this modern applied postmodernism is that they, they, they see the imperfection as the thing itself and not as a, as a flaw in the application of the thing. Right. Right. And I mean, for, for me, the frustration is, so on the one hand, as we talked about before, she says, I'm suggesting that black women can experience discrimination in ways that are both similar to and different from those experienced by white women and black men. That makes a lot of sense to me. Black women sometimes mm-hmm. experience discrimination in ways similar to white women's experiences. Sometimes they share very similar experiences with black men. Yet often they experience double discrimination, the combined effects of practices which discriminate on the basis of race and the basis of sex. So I think that uh, there is a real point to be made there, and and uh, that makes a lot of sense. I think where I get more frustrated is, ra- rather than addressing that problem straight on, I, I think that the that they quickly, folks who are in, in this camp, they quickly move to the next level, which is to just assume that based on these these factors of, um, you know, race and, and sexual preference and so forth that just based on those and, and your sex, well, you're, we assume that you are being, uh, discriminated against. And that's certainly not how the law works. I mean, what you just described, I think is exactly how the law should work, which is we assume how should, how should a human being be treated in this situation? Well, I don't, I don't think that, uh, our jurisprudence should come to the table and just assume, okay, this, uh, this discrimination exists. So now our analysis is really just to determine to what level it exists. And when we, uh, stack all these factors on top of each other and these, uh, these hierarchies and tiers of, um, uh, what sets you apart from being white or male. Well, as we add those together, 
that sort of determines the level of discrimination. So, but we assume, we assume discrimination at the beginning. So that's where I have a problem with it. Yeah, and no, I feel the same frustration because some of the initial points are totally understandable. I mean, she has a couple of pages in here about how cases of rape were tweeted, treated in earlier times and how basically white women would be believed and black women wouldn't be. Or they would be believed, but they but you know, the judges would say, oh, well, you know, they're they're loose they're licentious you know they you know they're different from us so you can't really say you know you can't prove a case or you know really just un unpleasant old-fashioned straight-up racism and i think that was that yeah that's definitely something unique to black women that's different from the way black men were discriminated against and different from the way white women were discriminated against and and she also makes a point about how you know uh, sort of uh, white feminists talk about how the, the, the sexual revolution and, you know, oh, now women have started working outside the home. And she's saying black women always worked outside the home. And that's true for, for poor women of every race, too. I mean, that's that's sort of something about how feminism of that day was really a middle class movement. And that they were, you know, look, we've made this great advance. And you know, <laughs> a lot of people are like, yeah, yeah, uh, my, my mother works outside the home. She cleans houses or she does this and that. You know, it's it, that's not new nor is it maybe a particular advance for us so these points i i i get they're not really the last part was not really a law point even though this is again a a law review article but the first one was it's just where do you go from there is i think she takes it in a in a direction that doesn't really make sense to me and it does i don't think it it benefits anyone this sort of amorphous assessment of intersections is never a law that's not clear is not going to benefit people if it benefits anyone it'll benefit the strong i think because they're the ones who know how to talk to judges or bureaucrats or whoever is in charge of enforcing an amorphous law that that takes into account a million different factors better i would say for everybody but especially for people who are poor or disadvantaged it, it would be to be the law is what it is and it's enforced rigorously across all different divides. That is, that's, that's how liberalism has benefited people who are not otherwise advantaged. And I, that's what I I always shake my head when they say, you know, somebody on the progressive side of things will want a government bureaucracy to figure things out and sort things out by all these different factors and get just the right answer. And it's like, well, who, who do you think that's going to benefit? Cause we've got bureaucracies now and they mostly benefit insiders. Right. Right. You know, they mostly benefit like who wants more regulations, the biggest companies, not the little guy and not the guy coming up and not the middle sized company or, or the insurgent or the big company that's getting into a new field. It's the established players. They, they want the regs cause they can deal with them cause they're, you know, they, they might've helped write them. I, I feel like bigger government doesn't, Bigger government only benefits big business or, or big labor or big something. Mm-hmm. Small small government can, might help the little guy just by leaving him alone, except to say you've got to be treated the same. Maybe that maybe I'm uh, equally uh, blind to something. You know, maybe I'm sure. I I would love to have somebody who believes in this come on and tell me why I'm wrong, but uh, it it just it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, so you touched on this a little bit, but I, I she she has a a discussion of what I guess I would characterize as kind of an intramural disagreement. She says uh, 
Both feminist theory and anti-racist politics have been organized in part around the equation of racism with what happens to the black middle class or to black men and the equation of sexism with what happens to white women. So when it comes to the these, uh, I, I guess I'd call it intramural, but you you have these these different, I guess, uh, interest groups that are that are pushing policies in the feminist space and others who are in the anti-racism space. And uh, for those who are feminist, it's assen- what they're essentially fighting for in her argument is is uh, an equation of sexism that happens to white women, not so much black women. And then when it comes to the anti-racism, this is uh, focused on what happens, the discrimination that's occurring with black middle class or black men. So rather than black women. So when feminist theory and politics, she says that claim to reflect women's experience and women's aspirations do not include or speak to black women, black women must ask, ain't we women? Which I think is a, uh, is a quote from Sojourner, Sojourner Truth, who said, uh, mm-hmm. ain't I a woman? Not only are women of color, in fact, overlooked, but their exclusion is reinforced when white women speak for and as women. That's, I mean, that, I'll take her word for it. This is not a space that, uh, that, you know, that I'm well-versed in, but that mm. argument makes a lot of sense to me, you know, that, uh, yeah. that white women are the ones who are leading the kind of the feminist charge. And, uh, so, I mean, this is an argument against them. This isn't an argument necessarily against the law. She says feminists ignore how their own race functions to mitigate some aspects of sexism and moreover, how it often privileges them and contributes to the domination of other women, namely black women. So, Uh, And then on the other side, she says, black women are caught between a black community that perhaps understandably views with suspicion attempts to litigate questions of sexual violence and a feminist community that reinforces those suspicions by focusing on white female sexuality. Although patriarchy clearly operates within the black community, presenting yet another source of domination to which black women are vulnerable, the racial context in which black women find themselves makes the creation of a political consciousness that is oppositional to men, black men, difficult. So in other words, uh, when it comes to the anti-racism uh, sort of interest group uh, politics and, uh, and, and advocacy, they're focused on what's going to help the, the middle class black, um, the black family or black men. And uh, she's, she's going to go on to argue like, well, there's just as much patriarchy within the black community, but because black women basically need to find uh, solidarity with black men, it makes it very difficult for them to make an argument against kind of, uh, she says that opposition to the black men becomes difficult. So, so they are in her arguing, she's, they're caught in the middle. Uh, black women are caught in the middle because white women in her telling of this, uh, have their, their advocacy is focused on, on, uh, essentially the s- sexual violence and, and, uh, feminism, uh, interests of white women, where when it comes to the black community, it's uh, it's focused a little bit more on black men or black community writ large, and uh, and the specific interests or uh, issues that affect uh, black women, so they're just sort of caught in the middle in in a place where they can't really make that argument because uh, because they would either be running uh, contrary, to, uh, contradicting what uh, what white women are saying, or uh, black men, or at least uh, making a a, uh, a criticism of, of black men that's not helpful to the to the overall cause. So I mean, uh, this stuff obviously is not legal and it's not law. This is just more. 
this is this is the interest group uh, positioning themselves, and uh, and how they're arguing and how they're uh, focusing their advocacy, and uh, and black women kind of fall between the cracks in her in her telling, and and uh, you know that that makes some sense to me. I don't know what you think. Yeah, and well, and and one of the, I guess one of the bigger points of the idea, of, I mean, the idea of intersectionalism outside of the discrimination context makes some sense too. And this, you know, when you like when you hear about a political race, you say, oh, this candidate's doing better among blacks. This candidate's doing better among Asians. You know, this this one's winning women. It's like, well, some people are in all those groups. Some people are in none of those groups. And we are all, we do all have these different things in us. Our, we all have a, a race, a sex, a, a national origin, a, a religion or a lack of religion, uh, a, you know, a community, a physical location, a state. We, we, we all have these things. Um, I just, I don't see the case for upending the entire law and I also, and, or even, and especially upending society. Cause I, I think there's a lot of critiques of liberalism nowadays and the postmodern critiques are maybe the loudest of them. But a lot of what we hear is about the death of community, about how there's too much individualism. And I even hear this from my friends on the right pretty often now. Not the not the hardcore libertarians, but but a lot of the more traditional conservatives say we went too far with the individualism. You know, we we've cut ourselves off from community. We've you know, and as much as intersectionalism sounds like it's about connecting the different groups, I, I think when you have so many intersections, you atomize people. You're you're saying you know, it, it, in a traditional society, a family would have an interest, but here, if everybody's different along these different lines, it's like saying that. A husband and wife can't have the same interest because one is oppressed along at one axis and one isn't. And you know, the, the children might be oppressed among different axes than the parents, or the, you know, the cousins are oppressed upon a still different axis. It 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 seems to really speed up even the individualization, the hyper individualization. That's kind of one of the negative side effects of a, of a universal liberal state. And and that that is troubling to me because I, I think it I don't think this unites anyone. I think it, it I mean it purposefully divides because it's saying the world different in, in all these myriad ways. But it, I think it I think it leaves people feeling more alone, and it also in emphasizing, like you were saying, that the presumption of discrimination rather than actually looking for it and saying, well, is, you know. Can you the but for cause? And is there a, is this the proximate cause of, of why this thing happened that that you say negatively affected you? Is it because of this thing, or is it just something bad that happened? And you also are different in this way or that way from the person who did it to you, or who you blame for it. I I, I think it 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 calls us to separate ourselves, mm-hmm. and it doesn't. And in, there's so few occasions anymore to, to emphasize our sameness. And I think that's maybe, uh, as Peter Turchin said, we're just spiraling towards uh, one of those ages of discord, but it does feel discordant often in that we don't have, I mean, many times, how many times in our lifetime have we really felt that sort of like, Hey, we're all in this together thing. And yeah. how many, and how many of them have been recent? I mean, 9-11, 20 years ago, we, we certainly were in that together. Yeah, absolutely. I but mean, that's the, two, yeah, that's, that's two decades now. 
the, the logical extension of what she's arguing is to essentially say that with uh, the, the, the logical extension is to conclude that we really have no ability to talk to one another at all because it really just depends on the, the layers of overlapping intersection um, that, uh, that you experience. And so your personal experience is so unique to you that, you know, how can anyone judge or how can anyone step into it? And, and there's a, like, like we've said, there's just a presumption of, of uh, layers of discrimination whether it's been demonstrated, it's just assumed to be true. And how, how do we get along? I mean, how do we how do we have anything uh, in common? I mean, as, as you're describing, you know, it's kind of like, um, it, I think it used to be a little bit more the case that you could disagree on politics, but you went to the same church. So you had that mm-hmm. in common or, or at the very least you rooted for the same sports team, right? You know, mm-hmm. we're, uh, we're different colors and we're very different uh, uh, lives uh, d- lifestyles and, or, you know, experiences, but, it's, but we're both, uh, you know, we're all like Redskins fans or well, Washington football team or <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, but we're all, we're all fans of the same team. And so, you know, we have that in common, but this is sort of like what, I mean, the logical extension of this, this frame of thinking is that we have no ability to, to make, uh, to understand one another or make judgments at all. And the, uh, what I mean is the law has no ability to make judgments. And, and I think that's where a lot of, a lot of, uh, critical theory thinkers are at is that, you know, there, there's, you, you, you know, judges and certainly, uh, um, those with, uh, fewer, um, fewer, uh, intersectional points, they have no right and no ability and no, no position to make judgments at all about people who do have more points. And I think that's just a problematic place to be because then now we're not judging each other on our behavior. Uh, the law is not judging on based on, on behavior or choices. Instead, we assume that, uh, the choices are, are essentially irrelevant, but, uh, but are really a function of these, uh, layers of oppression. You know, you, you rob the bank because, you had these multiple layers of oppression and it just pushed you in that direction. And so, so there's, there's no ability to understand one another. There's no ability to, to judge one another on, on any objective factor. There's certainly no, um, no ability. uh, There's no room left for personal responsibility. And, uh, I, I, I just think that that just put, puts us in a really dark place and a really difficult place because, you know, how, how do you, how is there any order in society at all? Uh, it's, it's pure discord, as you said. Yeah, you're. I, I agree to all of that, and it, it's funny you mentioned sports. I remember the last time I really remember a real outpouring of togetherness across race, across sex, across class was February fourth, twenty eighteen, when the <laughs> Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl, and yeah, they right. were they were dancing in the streets, and every every different kind of person was out there yeah, except, Cow- yeah. except Cowboys fans. <laughs> so, but more to this point, um, this shows why I think Crenshaw is really in the postmodern movement is because of that, what, that what you're talking about, not being able to understand each other as a, as a sort of just the underlying basis of all of us. It's that idea of local knowledge that there's right. not universals, you know, that there's everything's local. And by local, she means like centered in an individual based on, I mean, people say, 
well, you know, it looks different from where I stand. And that's sometimes true about how you feel about things, but certain things must be true wherever you stand. I mean, that's, or how do you it, have a law? I mean, how do you have yeah, a law? Right. How can you be in this law business? You're just in the feelings business otherwise. You know, there's there's no law for everything's different depending on who everyone is. That That's 300 million laws, it, you know, each one for each American. It doesn't make sense. So it's it's frustrating because a lot of, I see a lot in the historical complaints she mentions here, and I, I am sympathetic because they, I, I think, she's right that there were there were injustices but I, where she goes with this doesn't make sense and i think would only lead to greater and more widespread injustice yeah i mean i think that's a that's a, a, a we could take that argument that you just made and and uh, and apply it broadly to basically left versus right is hey it, a lot of these left wing books that we've read or thinkers i i don't think we've read one where we've said this is from start to finish, just completely bonkers. I think we mm-hmm. almost universally said, there's a point to be made here and see, see the problem you're trying to solve. We just disagree that the, your, your method is the, is the best way to resolve that problem yeah. <laughs> or that's going to lead to the outcome that we all want. You know? And that's good. That's, that's why I like reading these books from the left too, because I, I think if you read people in their own words, you can understand we're looking at the same problem. And I, I think I think Crenshaw is wrong about how to solve it, just like I thought Marcuse and Marx and all the other folks on the left were wrong about how to solve it. But I, I think if we engage each other in good faith, we can at least get to that place where we say, I don't think you're trying to destroy this country. I think your policies might have that effect if they were put into into practice. But I, I think... The injustices she's citing, some of them are legit. It's just we're never going to see eye to eye on on how to get to a, a, a better place. Yeah. Well said. All right. That's Crenshaw. Catch us next time.